guys weren't here the past couple of weeks, I had some issues with my throat, and Doc told me to rest it, which means not doing things that aggravate it, which preaching and singing both aggravate it. So uh, we have some great guest speakers lined up for the next several weeks. Um, anyways, uh, before we jump into the Word of God, uh, Ben Potter, he's here in a second. He'll be coming up in a moment. Um, but I wanted to tell you guys a little bit about something that kind of cool that happened this past week. Um, I actually kind of forgotten about it. I didn't really forget about it, but someone actually told me, they're like, you need to share that with the church. And uh, I realized it, it kind of uh, brought light to the fact that oftentimes we can, uh, we, we can do good at preaching the Bible oftentimes when it comes to like actually testimony, like good things that God's doing in our lives and through our lives. Uh, we sometimes forget about that, and we realize how important it is sometimes to hear those stories. So in short, um, um, there is a guy by the name of Saeed Abedini I'll tell you guys about. Um, some of you guys already probably know who he is. You may have been watching uh, the news and kind of heard some scenarios going on. Um, I'm going to show you a quick little video clip. It's like a minute and a half, and then I'll share you kind of with you what had happened. I'll keep my words really brief because I don't want to cut too much into uh, uh, Ben's uh, message. But um, John Foreman, he's the lead singer guy from um, uh, Switchfoot. Uh, he did a little video clip just a couple weeks ago. He does a good job of explaining who Saeed Abedini is, if you don't know who he is, and then I'll finish up with a couple words. So here's a little video clip. Hello friends, for those of you who have not been following the case, Saeed Abedini is an American pastor who was arrested while building a government-sanctioned orphanage while visiting Iran. He was arrested and sentenced to eight years in prison because his faith is different than those in power. On September 26, 2013, he had been in prison for already for one year. Great strides have been made that showed a promise of a release for Saeed. However, recently we learned that Saeed was moved out of Evan Prison, which was a political prison, and moved to Rajai Shar Prison, a more obscure, more dangerous prison that houses inmates of the most heinous crimes, many of whom are on death row. It is more important than ever that we do all we can for his release. There's a new petition that has been started for Saeed. The petition is to gain attention for a U.S. Senate resolution that has been proposed calling for his release. This bipartisan-sponsored resolution directly calls on the government of Iran to immediately release Saeed Abedini and all other individuals detained on account of their religious beliefs. Along with this resolution, we're asking President Obama, who has previously been an advocate for Saeed, to once again call for his release by name and for the international community to raise their voice for Saeed Abedini. You can sign the petition at beheardproject.com and please share his story anywhere you can. Once again, thank you for your support. So in short, if, uh, if you've been following this whole scenario with this guy in the news, um, just a couple, like less than a week and a half ago or two weeks ago, I guess, uh, you know, our government kind of made some negotiations with Iran um, over a, a nuclear deal and so on and so forth. And it was really heavily weighted in the favor of Iran. And um, unfortunately, because we have an American in prison over there right now, um, there was a lot of hope that somehow his name would be brought into this whole deal, and that hopefully he would have been released. Unfortunately, his name was not even on anyone's radar screen on that particular negotiation, which um, the next morning after I read that in the news, I was just like, ah, oh, man, it's such a bummer. Like, what, 
what can we do? And I just kind of had a, 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 just a compassion sort of in my heart, but at the same time, sort of a sense of like, I don't, I don't really know what to do. I mean, I'm all, all the way over here. I'm not really sure how to, how to help this guy. Um, I was reading in Isaiah, quick little verse, I'll throw it up here. Isaiah chapter one, verse 17, it says, learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, uh, defend the cause of the orphans, fight for the rights of the widows. And um, it just struck me that um, Saeed's wife, her name is uh, Nagme, um, she's virtually a widow right now. And these two kids that she has, young children, are actually fatherless. And so I'm just thinking, what, what can we do to somehow help the virtual widow and the fatherless? And um, I was on a blog that morning, and I saw that they were kind of kicking around some ideas, basically carrying the same sentiments that I had. And I, I just kind of had this thought, like, man, I wonder if we can, like, uh, take the power of Facebook, you know, just somehow use it as a platform and rally the support of, you know, lots of people and friends and so on and so forth on Facebook, and maybe we can make this thing go viral and uh, somehow, like, have a particular date in mind and, and make this happen. So that morning, I think it was like a Monday morning or Tuesday morning, I, I formed a Facebook event page. And um, so next slide, I'll kind of show you just some stats with regard to that. It's called Free Saeed um, on Facebook. It was just an event that we had done. The goal was on uh, the following Wednesday, which would have been just a couple days ago. The idea was to basically just blitz social media, Pinterest, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all these other types of things uh, with the Free Saeed hashtag, and um, hopefully it might you know, get some attention somewhere around the world and uh, cause our governmental officials to realize that even though uh, Saeed may not be on their radar screen, um, he is on the radar screen of his wife and kids, and he is on the radar screen of a lot of people in America as well as on the radar screen of God, and he does matter. Um, and so um, that particular event basically had around 34,000 people participate. And that was just from people sharing it with others, inviting it, and they participated. Over, uh, over a half a million people were invited to that particular event. And on the actual day of the event, which was, uh, like I said, just Wednesday, uh, past several days ago, we actually trended number one on Twitter, which meant we literally took over Twitter that day, which was amazing. How many of you, just out of curiosity, actually heard this and did anything about it. Maybe, maybe you didn't know about it. Who, who heard of it and did something about it? So thank you. Like, your guys' voice was heard, and here's, here's why we know it was heard. Next slide. Um, within the next 36 hours after that, um, this actually became kind of headlines in a lot of different blogs. And basically, American pastor Saeed Abedini's wife uh, and the ACLJ are going to testify before Congress next week. So on Thursday, December 12th, somehow through this, within 36 hours after this, we had actually heard that this was attributed to the voice that was raised via social media, which meant every single one of you that raised your voice, every single one of you that actually used that hashtag, you were heard. You were heard. It wasn't just simply, you know, raising your voice via social media, but it was the prayers of the saints, people that just prayed and asked God to do something, a miracle. So as a result of that, uh, Saeed Abedini's wife, Nagme, she's going to have an opportunity this Thursday at December, uh, December 12th at 9.30 in the morning, which means most of you guys are going to still be in bed, your nice little toasty beds, uh, when she's um, standing before Congress. So what I would encourage you guys to do is um, you can continue to help, but here's several different ways in which you can do this. So next slide. Um, what we've done is we've actually uh, moved it from basically being an event page to actually uh, a community page on Facebook. So you can go there. It's just facebook.com forward slash Free Saeed. Um, and what we're really just asking you to do, um, we'll start from the last to first, is just pray. We just need you to pray. Really, at the end of the day, just pray. I mean, the power of saints agreeing uh, with what God, what's up with what's on God's heart. Social justice is what's on God's heart. Social justice is a word that oftentimes gets tossed around, but in short, it just simply means setting right that which is wrong. That's all it is. It's like the idea of taking a bone that's out of joint and putting it back in the joint. And, you know, I realize we don't 
technically have the power to somehow go over to, you know, the prison there in Iran and do anything. But we have other platforms by which we can do that. And so praying, first of all, social media, use your social media to continue to make this known. Invite your friends and people that you know to this event. Um, Email your governmental officials. And everything that you can do step by step is actually on this site. So um, we've got got a bunch of uh, ideas for you. There's basically a template letter. So if you actually wanted to email your um, your elected officials. I did. I uh, emailed Barbara Boxer and Diane Feinstein. I heard chick- uh, cricket chirps. Um, but at the end of the day, um, th- the point that I would encourage is um, email your governmental officials. Like this is this is not about politics. This is not about politics. This is about doing what is right and seeing one of our U.S. citizens who actually happens to have a wife and two kids um, restored back to the family. That's that's really what it is. So that's it. Join, um, email leaders, social media, use that, and then ultimately pray. So, but all I want to say is that thank you for those of you that uh, participated. Your, voice, your voices were heard. God moved. We prayed that God would move mountains and do amazing things, and we really truly believe that this was a direct response or answer uh, to our prayers that God created this opportunity for Nagme to be able to stand before Congress. Um, so Praise God for that. So I want to share that with you guys. God does answer prayers. That's it. That's the moral of the story. I'm going to have uh, Ben come on up. If you guys don't know who Ben is, Ben has uh, been a part of this church for a really long time. He's been involved with junior high, high school ministry, and he's taught here several times. So if you guys uh, have ever heard him before, you know Ben's a great teacher. So you'll enjoy Ben. Thank you. I'll get your hopes up too soon, but uh, but let's just see what happens, and then we'll go from there. And... uh, but anyway, thank you. I'm really, really honored. Thank you, Brian, for letting me get up and teach. And um, I want to just encourage you guys as a church to continue to be praying for our pastor. Um, with he's dealing with this this issue with his throat, and um, and we believe we are God heals. And so we're not gonna, just going to wait on you know s- some kind of surgery or, or there's not it's not happening, but some kind of any kind of medical thing. But you know, but we want to we want to plead with God to do a miracle with him and to be glorified in in this time. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just going to open some prayer, and we're going to get into the book of Hosea. Um, so pray with me. God, we just invite you, invite you here this morning. Well, we know that this is a place where you have met so many people. You've just worked on our hearts in so many different ways over the years. And we just thank you for this church that you have created, God. We thank you for the work that you have done um, through so many uh, different leaders and, and teachers that have come up and shared your word. And so we pray this morning that the words that are shared would just, they would bring life and healing and they bring hope. And so God, we pray that, that you, your name would be made great as we, we open it this morning. And God, we want to pray for our pastor. We thank you for Brian. We thank you for the work that you've done in his life and the burdens that you put on his heart for all these people in San Luis Obispo. Um, and, and, this, and beyond. And so, God, we pray that in this time, Lord, that you would, just, you would just show yourself as a healer and that you would touch his throat and that you would remove this. And so, Lord, we pray that it would just be a radical testimony to his doctors and to this church that you're a God of heals. And, Lord, we know that he is not the only one suffering here. And, Lord, we know that many of us come into this room with pain and hurt and need healing. And so, God, I want to pray for this church I pray for those right now that, that are hurting, that are here needing something from you, God. Your God is gracious and it gives. So we come before you, God, and ask. We ask you to heal. We ask you to give life and, and, and work on us in this time. We pray for Saeed, Lord. We pray for what he's going on with over there in Iran, and we pray for his freedom, God. 
We ask that you just use him as a, as a testimony uh, in this time where he's in prison. God, I pray that he would be like Paul and reaching to Philemon and seeing salvation to come to those in the prison. So use him in radical ways, God. But most of all, we pray that you would remove him from this injustice. We, we believe in you, God. We believe that you're good and that you are full of power. And so we look forward to seeing your hand at work. Pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Oh, man, so good. So many good things to pray for, right? So many things, so many burdens. That's why I, didn't, I just want to encourage this, encourage us all um, that it, when you come into this room, I, I want prayer to be more than just our intro-outro. I want it to be something that becomes more of a culture of this church. And I feel like, man, myself, I just look at my own life. There's so many ways for me, all of us, we want to grow in this, become a praying people, a praying church. And... Um, Man, there's such power there. And I, and I believe that our God, man, our, our God wants to hear our hearts as well. Amen. And so I just want to encourage us with that. We're going to be in the book of Hosea this morning. If you want to turn to chapter 3 of Hosea, uh, go for that. And, um, and if you need a Bible, we have Bibles on the wall back here. Um, and uh, feel free to steal one this one Sunday. That's our gift to you. Um, anyway. That wasn't funny at all. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> you said that like a zillion times. All right. We know that we can steal the Bibles. Thank you, Ben. Okay. Let's get in it. Hosea chapter 3, huh? Started verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days and you shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So I will also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice, pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in the fear of the Lord and into his goodness in the later days. Um, so we've been, we've been studying this book of Hosea, and it's just a radical story, right? It's a radical story that God calls this man, Hosea, to marry a prostitute, to marry a woman that has been, it was already living in this lifestyle of whoredom. And, it, and some commentators that I've, you know, reading on this, they, they look at the story and they're like, this is so bizarre that this can't actually be true. Like this was a metaphor for us to see God's love. But Hosea is just this, this character that was kind of made up for us to learn from. And, and I just don't think that's true. I think that this is a man that actually lived in this time. He, he preached and he, and he prophesied during the time of Amos as well. Uh, around the 8th century B.C. Um, and, and this is a guy that man. He has been brought through so many different trials. All the way up to the chapter we're in right now. This woman went from being a, just adulterous. This woman went, they, they bore children together. They raised a family. So this is a number of years have gone by with this story. And then we see that in chapter 2, she, she, is, she goes out and begins to just prostitute herself out for money. Selling her body for money. And in chapter 3, it's almost like this story, this climaxes with, with God reaching back down to Hosea after some time and saying, this isn't over. The story's not over. What I'm going to share with you is, is, is going to be a great request. It's going to be a great command. 
And Hosea receives this word to go again to Hosea, who's loved by another man. If you can just imagine, I think when we read Jewish writing, it's hard because there's not a ton of detail. There's not a ton of this, and this is how he felt, and this is what was, this is the scene. You know, Hebraic writing is very much just, here's, here's what happened. And it's, 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 in a sense, it's sometimes it's very dry. And so we have to, in a sense, when we're reading into the story, we have to see, use our imagination just a bit to understand what may have been going on in the heart of this man. I mean, if I just imagine, you know, I, I got to say this. <clears throat> I haven't experienced this, any kind of pain in this way before. And I, but I know that there's people in this church that have. And I know that this is a, a, a real issue of unfaithfulness, infidelity. And, and I want to just say that this is a story that God is giving to Hosea. And Hosea is called in a great way to be a light and to use his, this, this pain to shine forth God's great love. And he says that right from the beginning. And, and so I don't want to stand up here and say that I understand everything that he's going through and that I have this advice that's just going to help us in any way if this is something you are dealing with. But what I do want to do is I want to point us to God's love this morning. I want to show us, man, just how great our God is to love us in our unfaithfulness. Um, and so the, the pain that this guy must be feeling, I mean, he's already not only raised a family with this woman who has been unfaithful, but, I mean, she's, she's left him and is on the street. And right here again, it's almost like God is pulling back the wound and saying, now I want you to go again and love this woman. I want you to go, even as hard as this is for you at this moment, I want you to go and you're going to be a picture of my love for my people Israel. It's, just a, it's a radical story and it just seems bizarre. But we have to look, think about this. And this is a very simple truth. When we look at God right here is... is commanding Hosea to love someone. And I couldn't help when I'm reading through this at first. It, it's interesting to, to think, I mean, how often does God actually ask you to love certain people? And do, do you ever listen and ask God, God, who do you want me to love? It's a very simple question. But who is it that God is saying, go and love that person? Because this is, you know, it's easy for us to kind of pick and choose who's convenient for me to love, who am I kind of... Uh, whom I like, you know, and who, who do I kind of jive with, and I'll, I'll love those people and let other people love other people or whatever. But right here, God is calling Hosea to love maybe the most difficult person that he could love. She, in a sense, has become an enemy to him in so many ways. Um, a, a little silly story. Uh, recently, me and my wife, I don't know where she went. She's gone. Wife, are you around? Hello? No, she's gone. Okay. Oh, there she is. Hey, sweetheart. Uh, and me and my wife, we... Uh, we went uh, hunting up north recently, and uh, I, I feel like I have a hunting story every time. But, uh, you know, like whatever any good couple, loving couple would do with each other. So we were up north hunting, and uh, we're out in the field, and I came back in after a long day, and it wasn't uh, that great of a hunt, but uh, I realized my truck got broken into, and all these little plastic ducks that I have in the back, they were, they were gone. And, uh, man, immediately, I was just, the feeling of getting robbed, I was just like... This wrath just started boiling up in me. You know, I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is, this is not right. And like, who dare would steal my plastic ducks from me? And, and, and I got on the phone, I called the ranger and he, you know, him being a hunter, he just felt my pain. And he immediately was just like, yeah, we're going to find this guy. And man, I'll tell you what, this guy's going to get shot if he gets found. And, and I'm like, yeah, let, we're going to get him. We're going to, you know, 
And we're just feeding off of each other this, like, anger over what just happened over my, duck, my little plastic ducks being gone. And, and then I got on the phone with my dad, and I thought he's just going to fuel my fire a little more, pour some more gas on it, feel my pain. And I got on the phone with my dad, and he goes, well, Ben, uh, you know, God calls us to love our enemies. I'm just like, it's not what I want to hear right now, Dad. You know, I'm, you got to feel this with me right now. And, and uh, so my dad just kind of reminded me of that simple truth that Jesus gives us, not just to love our neighbor, but to actually go and love our enemies. How radical is that? When you think about how, how hard is that for us to love the people that we're enemies with? That's, that's very difficult. Um, and it, thinking about this and reading on it, I came across this really great sermon by Martin, Martin Luther King Jr. And he wrote this sermon from prison after being thrown in prison over a protest. And this is a man that was greatly hated, right? So many people were after this man. So, much, so many unjust reasons coming after him. And he wrote this, this I'd encourage you if to search for this, um, you know, on Google. It's, it's up there. And, um, but I, this little excerpt it just really spoke to me. It says this. He says, answering the question of loving our enemies. He says, let us be practical and ask the question, how do we love our enemies? First, we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. Forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on the evil act. It means rather that the evil act no longer remains as a barrier to the relationship. Forgiveness is a catalyst creating the atmosphere necessary for a fresh start and a new beginning. It is the lifting of a burden, the canceling of debt, the words, I will forgive you, but I will never forget what you've done, never explain the true, real nature of forgiveness. And so reading that, I mean, this guy, and he goes on and on about he, how he plans to love his enemies and how he plans to win them back, the people that want to kill him. It's just really inspiring. Uh, but beyond that, it's just interesting to think, you know, we treat this thing of forgiveness in a very interesting way. And, and I'm thinking about the way that, you know, what Martin Luther's saying is right on with the story of Jesus' message, forgiveness being this catalyst to actually loving people. But what what he's, he's getting at, he's, he's made me just kind of chew on, man, how do we forgive? And a lot of these ways, I've just kind of racked my own heart and say, man, how, how do I forgive people? And when I really think about it, there's just all these interesting ways where sometimes you may forgive in this way. You say, you know, you're wrong, someone commits offense against you, and you're like, I'll forgive you if you meet me halfway. If you, you know, I want to see some improvement and then I will give my forgiveness to that person. And, you know, and we kind of treat our forgiveness almost like we want them to kind of feel the pain and feel the, the hurt that we've gone through before we give it to them. Or, you know, a lot of times in our culture, we throw this silly phrase around, forgive and forget. And it, every time I hear that, I just, I was like, does that really work? I mean, it worked for anyone here. I mean, because it's, it's something that I just think is, is so shallow because nothing is being done with the pain and the hurt. Sometimes you may forgive. You might have this, this relationship where, uh, with someone where you, you forgive them to your face. Yeah, brother, I forgive you. And then when you're around other people, that, it's obviously that forgiveness has never really been dished out in a real way because the way you talk about them, the way they come up in a conversation, you slander their name in sly ways, putting them down because you want them to experience the pain that maybe you've experienced. 
So it comes down to this. When we think about forgiveness, one or two things has to happen. Either they will pay or you will pay. And what we see, what God is calling Hosea to do, he's calling Hosea to go and pay for the hurt that she's committed against him. He's calling Hosea to go beyond what seems right in his own eyes, but he's going and he's going to, I want to display my love in such a radical way that you're going to go, Hosea, and you're going to pay. Even though she's in the wrong, even though she could care less about you and, your, and, and our love and your love for her, you're going to go and pay. So if you truly want to deal with some pain and hurt that's been done in your life, you have to answer that question for yourself. Will you pay or will they pay? There's no middle ground. Something must be done with the offense. We can't sweep it under the rug. We've tried that over and over and over again. And if you've lived more than an hour, you realize you can't sweep our problems and our pain away. We can't just think better about ourselves. We can't raise our self-esteem. Something must be done with the pain and with the sin that's committed against us or that we commit to others, right? And so in this story, it's just, it's so blunt to say, this is just how great God's love is. Man, when I was studying this, Brian gave me a great commentary, this guy named James Montgomery uh, Boyce. And he titles this, his, his commentary on this chapter, the greatest chapter in the whole Bible. I read that, I was like, oh my gosh. How, okay, how will I teach the greatest chapter in the whole Bible? And I think, you know, you're like, well, what about, the, what about the story of Jesus? I think that his point is, is that it points to the greatest story in the whole Bible. It points to such a beautiful way in the Old Testament. God's story is not just all of a sudden getting kicked off in the New Testament. But when we read through the whole Bible as one story, we see that the prophets are constantly pointing to, you need a savior. You need a Messiah. You need a, there is a hope deep down inside of you that goes beyond just what your felt needs are and just giving an atoning sacrifice for one more year that there's something that's much more needed for you to be fully saved and sanctified and brought into this new hope. You need a savior. So it's beautiful. In the Old Testament, we see them, there's a payment and it's to be done. And then the New Testament, we see Jesus comes and says, I'm gonna pay. I'm gonna be the one that forgives. I'm going to bear it. I'm going to be the one that pays for your sin. And it's, and it's beautiful. And so that's why this chapter, I think, is maybe possibly, and at least in this guy's opinion, one of the greatest chapters in the whole Bible. Um, now think about this. God is giving us this story to kind of explain his love for us, right? And all through the Bible, we see different ways that God explains his love for his people. I mean, we see, we see um, this in a very common sense, that he says, my people are, part of, are citizens of a new kingdom. And so in a very broad sense, we're like, okay, awesome, right on. We see that relationship there. We are, are under, his, under his rule and his kingdom um, as people of God. And then, and then it, in another text like Romans 8 and all throughout the Bible, pushes further. And it says, the relationship between me and my people is like a father to his children. I am like a father to them. And, and, it, and that is, that's a beautiful picture as well. Uh, but then we see in this, this passage right here, it pushes all the farther and shows us that marriage is actually the deepest way, the most intimate type of relationship that God can have with his people. And so Hosea is just right from the beginning, is telling, God's saying to Hosea, this is how I want people to see my love for them like a husband to a wife. Now I think, who, who the, I'm just curious, who are the newly married folks in the room here, maybe a year 
you're into it or less, whatever. Right on, Nick. See your brother. Right on. We got one in the back. Okay. Any, any more? Like two? There's two newly married? Okay. Well, okay. For you two, uh, if you've, you know, it, it's interesting, and you can remember back for you folks that have been there for a while. Uh, you, when you spend that much time with someone, you kind of realize they know a whole lot about you. And you can be in a circle of people, maybe some folks you don't know so well, and you start talking and, t- and getting to know some new people. And it's funny, I, I don't know, I've realized in my own life that I'll start to tell people things. And then, like, for example, you're like, you know, yeah, I'm really looking to get into mountain climbing. And then your wife would be maybe next to you. She's like, no, you're not. I know you. You're, not, you're just trying to impress these people with some silly. I'm thinking about, thinking about getting some rock climbing ropes and click, you know. I, you know. And, and she's just, your wife just knows you in a way that is so much deeper and so much more intimate where you, get, you can't really hide anything from her. Right, right sweetheart? Yeah. And so she, she knows me. And, she, you know, I've seen it on her face times when I've been, say something because maybe I'm trying to impress someone. I want them to think better about me. And she's just looking at me like, are you serious right now? You're such a liar. You go and you preach. And you're such a liar. I'm like, I'm in a work in progress, all right? So we are, you know. And so it's, like, it's funny how, you know, and that's, that's a funny way. But in, the, in another level, my wife, she carries a weight of where I trust her words more than anyone else's words that may come to me. You know, with, with what I do for a living, I shoot photos and make movies and that kind of thing. And, you know, we get a handful of comments all the time about work we put out. And it's always encouraging or sometimes interesting reading what people have to say. Um, but at the end of the day, I love to put my work up against, let my wife see it, say, what do you think of this? What do you think about this? She's like, I don't know. I'm like, what? Everyone else likes it, you know? And she's like, and she's like yeah, it's pretty good. But, but it's because it, it just, it works on me because I trust what she has to say more than anyone else because of that intimacy that we have. Um, in the same way, her affections. I want her to think well of me more than anyone else ever besides God. You know, I want my wife, you know, in silly ways, you know, what do you think of my shirt today? I don't know. I don't like your shirt. You look like a bum. And like, no, okay. Okay, I want to listen to that. I want to take in her advice because if anyone I'm trying to impress, I want to impress her. It's my bride. And we have that same way where we want each other to, to, to have affections for each other. And, and that's what is so interesting about this letter, or this is not a letter, this prophecy from Hosea is that God is saying, I want to hold up and show just how deep and how intimate my love is for my people. And it's not just this chipper story, this chipper love story, right? We see from the beginning, God said, go again. He's pulling back the wounds. And then from there, we see in in verse 2, check this out. So, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to back up. Verse 1. Go again and, and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Okay, this is one of those moments in studying a passage where you're like, what? What does that mean? So God, okay, why did you have to give me that? Why couldn't it have been something more weighty, like, you know, though they are committing child sacrifice or something that we would be, yes, that needs to stop. That's not right. But then God says they're, they're worshiping other gods and eating cakes of raisins. You need to stop eating so many cakes of raisins. I don't like cakes of raisins, you know. It's, it's like, are they, I mean, are they not gluten-free? Or like, what's, what's going on here? What is, why is this such an offense towards God? Now, and, you know, researching this a little, 
apparently the cakes of raisins was something that had to do with the, the temple worship where they would come into the temple, uh, people that were worshiping the balls, and they would, they would sleep with the temple prostitute. And then these cakes of raisins were something that came along the line where they just been, became consumed uh, by it. It was part of the ritual. Um, and, you know, I, I'm trying to understand, too, like, hey, what, how did this feel? And I don't know, the other day I was over at Trader's, and I uh, bought the new cashews with s- sprinkled coconut on them. And the guy that rung me up, he's like, be careful, bro. These are really good. You know, I'm like, okay, whatever, man. You're, you're weird. You know, and I got back to my studio, and I'm like eating like, OMG, these are so good. And I just, I was like, maybe it was kind of like that. I don't know. Um, but this is the thing, is that in comparison, what God is saying, he's saying, this is my love, and you want cakes of raisins. It's like, seriously? My love that will pursue you while you're living in sin, while you're sleeping with another God, and you want cakes of raisins. And then I think what God is trying to show, and maybe God has a sense of humor, I think, is he, look at how ridiculous this idol worship is. And we think about the different things that we get caught up in. And the things that we pour out our time and our money and sacrifice our family for, our wives for. And it's like cakes of raisins in God's eyes. He said, look at how ridiculous this addiction is for you. Compare that to my love that I'm pursuing you and I'm coming after you, Gomer. And so I, I just want us to, I mean, thinking about this, there was, I read this book called The Screwtape Letters. I don't know if any of you read it, but it's a great book. It's interesting because it's this conversation between an elder demon and a younger demon and how they're tormenting and tempting this, this man. So you feel kind of weird reading it. You're like, man, is this all right? And, uh, but it's, it's this interesting conversation of maybe in C.S. Lewis's mind, what may have been happening when, when we're tempted. Um, and they talk in, in this conversation between these two demons, they're talking about pleasure. And they're talking about how they can't create new pleasures to pull God's people astray. But what they can do is they can warp pleasures. They can twist things in order to, to uh, confuse uh, believers. And this is, a, this is a piece from that conversation I thought was really interesting. It says this, Hence, we always try to work. This is the elder demon speaking to the younger demon. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure uh, to that in which is least natural and least redundant of its maker and least pleasurable. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. Let me say that one more time because this is key. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. It is more certain and better style. To get the man's souls and give them nothing in return, that is what gladdens our father's heart. That being the father of lies. To get their soul and give them nothing. To give them just enough so they keep coming back and buying those silly cashews, cakes of raisins. They keep wanting more and they work and work and work because there's there's a desire in the soul that wants to be filled and we're filling it with cakes of raisins. And I think... Man, God right here is showing them right to their face. This is ridiculous in my eyes. I want them to relearn my love for them. And man, when, we're, when we become slaves, as Jesus says in, in uh, John 8, someone who practices sin becomes a slave of sin, right? You literally become enslaved. And that's where we see verse 2 go here. Check this out in verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. 
we see right here just how dark this scene is. Hosea is already full of pain over the fact that this woman has left him. And God's calling him back to her. He's not just calling him, her, them back together in a, in a private place where they can work this out. He's calling him to a public place where Gomer would be standing on a, on a block and she's up for sale. In ancient times, when slaves would be up for sale, they literally would be stripped naked so the buyers could know what they're getting. And you can just imagine how hard this would be for a husband to come to his wife and see her for sale and not care. And, and for her to not even care that, that these men are just using her. These men, and she's just being passed around the block for others to just take their fill and purchase her. She's nothing more than, than worth this small price. And it's, it, it, you have to kind of put yourself in this scene to understand just how deep and how dark this is um, for Hosea. And what it says here in, in verse 2, it says, And I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer lethek of barley. This was the price that was worth about half the price of any common slave. Now, slavery in that day was, was different than the way that we understand slavery in, in the last three centuries, where slavery in the last three centuries would be much more people being kidnapped out of their home and forced into slavery. In those days, slavery would be more of something this was someone born into, their family were, were slaves. They'd work for a, for a master that was more wealthy. Um, and sometimes people would become slaves over acquiring a debt over some time that they couldn't pay back. And to pay that debt, they would just give themselves in service to their master, whoever they owed this debt to. That was most likely the case of, of Gomer, this place where she had acquired this debt that she owed and she couldn't pay it back herself. So she's putting herself up for sale. But we know further in this text that she... She is owned by someone else, her lover. And what we see here in this text is that the fact that she's going up for sale for 15 shekels and some barley, her slave master, her owner, doesn't value her at all. That's all she's worth. That's all she's willing to give for the next guy to have his fill. And we see that when you live in a, in a life of sin, doesn't it have play a toll on your identity and your soul in a way where you, you, you don't value yourself? You don't, you don't see the worth that God has bestowed on you? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not here at all saying that we need to just have higher self-esteem of ourselves. But I'm here to say we need to understand the esteem and the worth that God has bestowed on us as his creations, his image bearers. Um, there's a beautiful text that, that I want to read. If you want to go there... Um, Let's go to Isaiah, Isaiah 62, 3 through 5. Um, this, this text in Isaiah, is just, it, it's, it's a similar along the similar lines of God sharing his love for Israel and just how he values Israel. Isaiah 60, 62, verse 3 through 5. Sorry, I don't have any slides. Um, it says, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, for your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over her bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Constantly, friends, we hear these voices and we, we listen to the lie that you say, or God, or people can say to you, 
you're not worthy to, to be known by God, to be loved by God. But right here and here, we see consistently throughout God's word, he's telling us, you are my beloved. You are my wife. And I see value in you because I have chosen you to be my bride. It's beautiful. And Satan is constantly after us on our identity saying, no, you're not worth that. I remember sitting down with this guy downtown a few years ago, and we were talking about, I don't know, God kind of came up in a conversation. It was one of those weird times where I said to God uh, before I was downtown, you know, having some soup at New Cheese or whatever, and uh, I said, God, if you want me to talk to someone tonight, then awesome, I'll, I'll do it. And I, I, I don't know. I always get kind of feel like, oh, crap, what if God actually sends someone for me to talk to? You know, this is going to be awkward and weird. And, but then all of a sudden, I found myself I was sitting down. This guy was next to me, and he was like, what are you reading? And I was just like, I'm just reading my Bible and getting ready for youth group. And, and then he, he started opening up about his life. And he goes, you know, Ben, like, he's like, I, I get it that God can forgive me, but I don't think I can forgive myself for what I've done. I was like, so, bro, I was like, your standard of forgiveness, your standard of, of, of what needs to be paid is higher than God's. Are you serious? That can't be. And I think sometimes we, we, we listen to these voices that Satan is speaking to us and saying, you're not worthy. You, there's no way that you could pay back what's owed you owed for what you've done to other people. And Satan can only twist our identity. He can't like give us a new identity that's warped. He can only take what God has given us and confuse it and warp it. But what God is doing right here with Hosea, he's coming to her and saying, I am going to purchase you because I find value and worth in my bride and I love you. And this idea of purchasing is this beautiful picture of the beginning stages of redemption, of God redeeming her. Uh, And get this, this is kind of the, the following up. Go back to Hosea 3 with me. In verse 3, it says this, And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to any other man, so I will also be to you. Just simply saying, you're going to be mine again, and I'm going to be yours. But furthermore, in this text, it's, it's a little hard to understand in the, translating it to English, but in the actual Hebrew, what is it saying is, you're not going to have sex with any other man, neither will I have sex with you. And so what's going on here is Hosea is commanded to give this time where she would relearn intimacy, relearn what it means to truly be loved. Because he's, you got to get this, she's being purchased from slavery. Hosea is bearing her price. But more than that, Hosea doesn't want to just free her and force someone to live with her, right? Neither does God want a bunch of zombies forced to just be here, right? But he wants our hearts, and so what's needed to actually bring about this transformation where her heart would, be re, would relearn what it truly means to love. And that means tearing away these things that would become addictions to her. She has been addicted to sleeping around. And so what Hosea does, he pulls that all away. There will be a season where we will just be simply together and relearn what it means to truly love. And this is something where, because this is a prophecy, Hosea is a prophet. He's telling about what's going to come to Israel. This is what's gonna, how it's going to play out with the nation of Israel in the same sense. Verse 4. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in the fear of the Lord and, and to his goodness in the later days. 
And so what's going on is, is God is basically saying to the nation, says, I'm going to pull away all these dependencies that you have. Even if they may be good things, most of them are mentioned here are bad things. But God's pulling away these, these false worship, these false king, these kings that they set up for themselves. And I'm going to bring this back to, to uh, it just being you and me. And we're going to enjoy each other. And we're going to relearn what this looks like. Because at this point in history, it's pointing that, that Israel had left their, their, their king, the line of David. They, had a, they set up their own king. David is long and gone. Um, and so there was this prophecy that one day God would set up a king in the line of David. And so this right here is where we see this beautiful picture pointing forward for the people of Israel to long for this new king. Now, it's, it's interesting how appropriate this is in the season of Advent. Advent was this time where the Jews, this, this period, uh, where the Jews were would, would longing for the coming Messiah. Where they sang songs of, of hoping for renewal, hoping for healing and restoration, and hoping for their king. I mean, listen to a common, uh, common song we sing often. It's, it's inspired by this, in O Come, Emmanuel. It says, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, 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 O Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. Now, this is a song that's inspired from what, what the Jews would truly long for in that time. They're longing for someone to come and bring hope to them. Fast forward to the, the New Testament. We see the angel of God speaking to Mary and says this. The angel of the Lord said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end. So we see in the New Testament, God is giving us this hope for a king. Giving Mary, saying, in your womb lies the new king. The new king for Israel. Over hundreds of years, thousands of years, Israel was longing for this new king to come and bring redemption. Jesus is that king. Jesus came to be that one. Now beyond that, get this. What if this passage, you lay this passage up with, at the beginning, go again and love another man. Or love, sorry, go again and love this, this woman again. What if this was a conversation between the father and the son? You look at it in that light. The father's saying to Jesus, go again and love these people that love other gods, that love ridiculous things like cakes of raisins, that have set up for themselves their own prosperity and their own sense of, comfort. Go again and love them. And, and, and not just buy them. You're going to be their price. First Peter 1 says this. Listen to this text. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. Friends, if you call yourself a Christian, your debt that you have acquired over the ridiculous things that we give ourselves to, over the patterns of sins, has been paid with the precious blood of Jesus. Jesus comes as our payment. And in other words, and beyond that, you push it farther, Jesus was the one who was sold for 30 pieces of silver, right? He was sold, in a sense, like a slave to bear our identity and, in exchange, clothe our nakedness. 
to pull Hosea, pull Gomer off that block in her naked state and to cover her. The reason this text is so insane and so beautiful is that because it points forward, man, to Jesus' love for us and just how far he would go. Some of you are here and you could care less about Jesus' love. You're here and you're just, you're like Gomer. You don't even share a hint of maybe I should go back to God. But God is a God who pursues. And God is a God who meets us where we're at and pursues us in our darkest hour when we are just slaves to sin. And God is a God that clothes us and pays our price for us in our place. And he comes not just as our king to reign over us, but as our price and our sacrifice. So I want to invite I want to invite the worship band to come back up. And I want us to think about this. We're going to respond in a time of, of worship and, and, a, and in communion. If you're a Christian here, this time of communion is really a renewal of the vows that God has had with us. There is a deep love that God has. We've seen this in this text. God loves us and commands husbands, husbands, love your life, wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. This is a time for us to, to remember the covenant that God has with us and to renew our own vows with Jesus. So I want to encourage you guys to, to take this time and remember this and, and, and renew those vows. I mean, if you haven't met Jesus before, I'd encourage you. I would encourage you to see the great price that he has paid on your behalf to bring you out of slavery and to give you life. Let me pray for us. God, I just thank you. I thank you for the beautiful story that you have given us in Hosea. I pray, God, that that we wouldn't just write this off as some inspiring words, a a, a character that we want to just live up to, but that we would see that this is your story, God. This is your love that you're portraying for us with this man. And beyond that, God, I pray that we would just see how brightly this points to the love that Jesus has for his bride. God, I pray that you would renew our hearts. If those are here that are struggling with, their, with the way that they, they see themselves, the way they think God sees them, God, I pray that you would just show yourself as a God who just is pursuing even the prostitute, even the one who is naked and abused and, and, and is disgusting in most people's eyes. God, you love her. So God, I pray that you would just show us, show us that and encourage our hearts with that this morning. I pray in Jesus' beautiful name, amen.